Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be back with you this morning. I was here uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, I had just gotten out of the hospital with gallstones, and I was really hopped up on morphine, so I don't really remember much of what I said, and I'm not expecting you to either, but, but it's really nice to be back and, and actually you know, be here with you guys. I, I feel like I was a little absent of mind the last time I was here. Um, but it, it's always good to be out here uh, in the in the tech corridor. We don't we don't have these types of things in in Portland. This is nice. I like being able to look up and, and see all of you looking up as we sing. Um, my name is Steve. I'm I'm the assistant pastor at In Town Church, and uh, very thankful that Eric has called on me to be out here with you guys. And I understand that you've been going through a study on the Gospel of Luke, and so we're going to continue in that this morning uh, by looking at. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. This is the gospel reading. At that time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here. For three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. Would you pray along with me? Jesus, we have acknowledged already this morning that you are the world's true king. So as we come to your word, as we come to hear the difficult things that you have spoken to us, would we be reminded that you are truly God, that we cannot expect to understand you fully, And yet you have revealed yourself to us in a way that we find you lovely. That we can come to know something about you, that you are merciful. That you call us to yourself. I ask that as your word is proclaimed this morning, that we would hear your voice calling us back to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to look at this uh, passage this morning by looking at three things. Finger pointing, real repentance, and God the gardener. It was a few days after the September 11th attacks when Jerry Falwell and Pat Robinson, or Robertson rather, surmised that, that certain groups within America that had been sort of championing and fighting for a secularization of America uh, were at least partly to blame for the death and destruction that took place in New York City. 
Several years later, in, in 2010, just days after Haiti sustained an enormous earthquake that left hundreds of thousands of people dead, close to a million homeless, Pat Robertson insinuated that it was because the Haitians had actually made a pact with the devil years ago. In 2009, John Piper issued a statement regarding a tornado that affected the city of Minneapolis and seemed to insinuate that God sent that tornado as a warning to certain clergy within that city. Now, the three examples that I just gave you all happen to be religious leaders who claim that they know why destruction is happening in the world, and they're pointing fingers at other people saying, God's mad at those people, and that's why this is happening. But it's not just religious people that engage in finger-pointing, even though religious people really, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we do it better than most. We all do it, though. And so let me just save you the first step of your sermon discussion after I leave. <laughs> if I was you, I would say, yeah, Steve was talking about the danger of finger-pointing, and in doing so, he pointed his finger right at three other guys. <laughs> And that's actually sort of the point. We are constantly finger-pointing. We do it in our political discussions. We do it at our jobs. We do it in our families, with our spouses. We have a knack for emphasizing our successes and minimizing our failures, while at the same time emphasizing the failures of others and minimizing their successes. And this is really what seems to be happening at the beginning of our story this morning. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been giving hard sayings to the crowds that are following him. And he's actually, just prior to our passage, just finished chiding them for being able to tell what the weather is going to do, and yet being absolutely blind to understanding what is happening in him, in their very presence. He tells them that he's come to bring fire to the earth, to bring division rather than peace. And he says that on account of him, even families the absolute bedrock of ancient civilization will be split apart. And what Luke has been doing for us as he, as he pieces together the ministry and preaching of Jesus is he's trying to communicate to us that the kingdom of God is coming on in force. And all of the old systems of the world are being unmasked. And that means that everything that we used to think has to be reevaluated in the light that, of the fact that God's kingdom is coming to power in Jesus. And it's in the midst of this sort of discussion that Jesus is having with the crowds that someone runs up with a copy of the Daily World News and says, oh man, did you hear about the massacre that took place? I wonder what those Galileans did. And Jesus, you can almost hear him jumping on with a little bit of sarcasm. Sure. And how about those people in Jerusalem that got crushed to death by that tower? What is it do you suppose God was angry about with them? I mean, they must have done something to make him mad. That's what you think, isn't it, says Jesus. Especially with the tower. I mean, that's an act of God. They must have been worse offenders, worse sinners. Or more literally what he says is they must have been debtors above all. Why do we, why do we all think this way? Why are we so intent on pointing the finger at other people and explaining why God is mad at them? Well, for one thing, I think it's because it's comforting. If we can determine that God is mad at certain types or certain groups of people, certain actions, and that those things out there are the things that he punishes, well, then all we have to do is not be those people and not do those things, and we'll be fine, right? We are self-justification machines. 
And it's as if convincing ourselves that because other people do worse things than us, somehow we'll be exonerated. But this is the great irony of religious finger-pointing that Jesus unmasks for us in this passage. It is in this very act of pointing our finger at others to feel better about ourselves that is the core of sin itself. Because we are setting ourselves up as God, as the arbiter, as the judge, jury, and executioner. Finger-pointing is comforting because it leaves us in the driver's seat. It's a deflection of our guilt, of our own culpability. Finger-pointing is a way out of experiencing real repentance. Which is why Jesus sounds almost like a broken record in this passage. For every time that the people start to point their finger at someone else, he brings them right back and says, you have to repent. The overbearing need of the moment, right now, in the present, is that unless you repent, you will perish, just like all the people you're pointing your fingers at. Do you see how our finger-pointing actually serves to display our unrepentance? So often we think of unrepentant people as those people that are willfully continuing to engage in the same particular sin over and over with no remorse. And that's, that's true as far as it goes. But the unrepentance of the religious finger-pointer goes so much deeper because our finger-pointing reveals that we have failed to assess our own sinfulness and our own constant need to play God. See, unrepentance has less to do with perpetual sins than it does with sin, capital S, a state of being, a state of death in which we adamantly refuse to acknowledge our need for God. We're going to circle back around to that in a moment when we look at God the gardener. But, but the question we have to ask then is, what is real repentance? If repentance is the thing that we need, if we're going to take the words of Jesus seriously, Repentance seems to be the only way out of our predicament, the only way that we won't perish just like all those that these people have just mentioned. Before Martin Luther had his big moments of awakening that would go on to spark what we call the Protestant Reformation, he was absolutely consumed with guilt. And he started to wrestle with this question of what is real repentance? As he studied scripture and the righteousness of God, he was overcome with fear and dread. And so there, there are all these stories describing Luther's disposition at the time. And while it's likely that, that some of them have probably crossed the line into some sort of urban legend, they're still sort of instructive for us. And so, so there's this story that's told about Martin Luther as he becomes obsessed with rooting out sin in his life and displaying true repentance. He spent more and more time in confession. And at one point, he actually spent six hours confessing sin to his confessor. Six hours. And there was one occasion where after a particularly helpful time of confession, Luther leaves his confessor's booth and then comes right back and confesses that he was feeling a little bit prideful about how good his confession had just gone. And this is what Luther's confessor is reported to have said. He, he's at his wit's end. And I did not write this. This is a quote. You must get a hold of yourself, Martin. Every time you fart, you want to make confession of your sins. Quit coming to me with these puppy confessions, Luther. Go kill your father or something. Then we'll have a sin to talk about. Years later, after Martin had left the Roman church, after he had discovered the scriptural teachings of grace, he wrote his old confessor a letter and he thanked him for pointing out to him that true repentance starts with a love for righteousness, but above all, it starts with a love 
for God. I think if, if we're honest with ourselves, it's too easy f- for churchy folks like many of us here are to turn repentance into the new action step, the new thing that we can do in order to make God like us. But if we're going to think that way, then we have to repent good enough. We have to repent truly enough or bad things could still happen. We might not earn his favor. And that is such a sad twisting of what real repentance is because real repentance is rooted in the unshakable fact that there is nothing, nothing that any of us can do to earn God's favor. That's the point. Repentance is is turning away, not just from lust and anger and gluttony and all the rest, but it's turning away from our own self-deification, turning away from our perceived autonomy and turning to God and saying, I can't do anything with this. I can't outrun you. I can't outsmart you. I can't outmaneuver you. You, the very one that I have rebelled against and made my enemy, are the only person that can save me. Christian repentance is a turning away from attempts at life on our own terms and passing through death, through the death of Jesus, into new life. But the only way that we can really come to that sort of repentance that sort of repentance that is grounded in the fact that we can't earn God's favor is when we start to conceive of God as a patient gardener. The story that Jesus tells on the heels of his conversation about repentance is a parable about the nation of Israel. Israel is the fig tree who for three years now has had the opportunity to hear the ministry of Jesus, to see it unfolding. They had been waiting for their Messiah, and yet they are completely blind to who he is. And so it's been suggested then that, that God the Father is the, is the landowner and God the Son is the gardener. And if that's accurate, then the way that Jesus tells this story is actually going to require us to dive into a rather uncomfortable tension within Christian theology. Because we have to ask ourselves, is God the Father the kind of being that would look at a fig tree that represents his people and say, cut it down, I've had it? And is God the Son just some patient muse that that is able to talk God the Father back off this angry ledge, eventually having to take on the brunt of the Father's anger himself. And this has actually been a question that has plagued Christian theologians for centuries. One of the earliest Christian heresies was put forth by a guy who saw such disparity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, between God the Father and God the Son, that he eventually dismissed almost the entire Old Testament. And as the centuries have passed, this whole idea of God the Father being angry and God the Son being meek has led to the idea known more recently as divine child abuse. That somehow God the Father's anger is so uncontrollable that he had to take it out on someone. And so while it's good news for us, it's disturbingly awful news for God's Son. Now, as I said, this tension has plagued Christian theologians for centuries. So in the next five or so minutes, uh, I'm actually not going to solve it. Uh, maybe you guys can do that in, in your Q&A afterwards. Let me know what you find out. But I do think there, there are a couple things that we can realize from this parable that Jesus tells us. And the first is that we have to realize that all of us have what's called an atonement theory. Whether you're a Christian or not, you have heard of Jesus You have a conception of who Jesus is. You have a conception about the cross and what the gospel is really about. You are operating on an ocean's worth of assumptions that rarely, if ever, peek up above the surface. And most of the things that we think, most of the things that we even verbalize, 
are, are based on these assumptions that have come to make up who we are. And so when we come to Christian theology, we have to realize that we're coming with a lot of assumptions. And that's why, that's one of the reasons that we gather in corporate worship and discuss God's words corporately is because it allows us to have our own ideas sort of challenged a little bit, and they should be challenged. And so perhaps some of you have struggled with this idea of God the Father being angry and God the Son getting hurt as a result. Or maybe you've just heard other people offer that as a challenge to Christianity. If that's true, then I would challenge you to consider that 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 idea, the idea that, that God the Father is so uncontrollably angry that God the Son has to, like, somehow step in and, and make things okay, is actually a caricatured version of Orthodox Trinitarian thought. And, and we could go off on a rabbit trail for the rest of the week on this, but suffice it to say, Orthodox Trinitarian thought in no way ever pits Father against Son or Holy Spirit against the other two. God is a united being always acting in concert with himself. And scripture tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the divine nature. He is God. So whatever conclusions we come to about the anger, the wrath of God, we can also conclude that the mercy of God, the fact that Jesus takes on death himself, he is God. Therefore, that tells us something about who God is. But really, if we're being honest if we're really wrestling with Scripture's portrayal of God or even just God's own intersect in our lives, we have to reckon with the fact that he does at times seem angry. And at times he even seems to fail our own conceptions of goodness and care. I mean, even if the bad things happening in the world aren't happening as a direct punishment for sin, God still allows them to happen. Why? There are two things that I think we can take away from the parable that Jesus tells us. And the first is that the world is deeply, deeply broken. And it it takes away our finger pointing when we realize that the people that are mentioned here at the beginning that had their blood mingled with the blood of their sacrifices, those people were right where they were supposed to be. They were in the temple of God, and yet they weren't protected. They were doing everything right. How could God not have protected them? But notice that Jesus doesn't engage that line of questioning. He simply says, repent. The second realization that we have to come to is that God is far more complex than we could ever possibly understand. And I think this is kind of part of the point of Jesus' parable. Is that if you have a God who never stretches you, never pushes you, never disagrees with you, if you have a God who categorizes things exactly like you do, finding literally everything as important as you do in the moment you find it important, guess what? You now have a God in your own image. And rather than allow ourselves to be critiqued by God, we continue in setting ourselves up as God. We're like those people on American Idol. You guys, did you guys ever watch? Is that show still on? I have no idea. Did you guys ever watch American Idol? My favorite parts of American Idol was at the very beginning parts of the season when, when they would just find these absolute crazy people who would come out and they couldn't sing at all, which, like, if I were to try out, that would be me. Just absolutely no musical talent whatsoever. And they get in there and they just really do a terrible job. And the judges are very honest with them and they say, yeah, you're a great person, but you're just not a good singer at all. So you should, you know, find something else to do with your life. And what do those people do? They always come out to the camera and they say, man, those judges are crazy. Those judges are whacked. I'm the new talent. I'm the one. 
When we, when we tell God, God, your world is terrible and you're not doing it right, we're like those people on American Idol who can't sing worth a hoot, and yet we're telling the judges that they're giving the worst judgment ever. If we insist on being God, he will eventually give us over to that desire, and that is the worst punishment of all. Because we were made to worship an infinite God, not a God made in our own image. But here is the terribly, terribly good news, is that though God is so much greater than us, though that he is so much more complex than us, so much more powerful than us, though we continually push him to the margins, while he is in a position to do whatever he wants, however he wants to do it, he instead becomes one of us. He takes on our limitations and what? He becomes a gardener. And, and what Jesus says in this parable literally is translated, I will get manure on my hands and place it around the tree. And what we're seeing is that Jesus, God the Son, the Messiah that the world has been waiting for, isn't some king in splendor when he comes. He rather comes as a gardener and he covers his hands with the dung of the world and the manure of death in order that his entrance into our sin and death, we might have life. And what we're left with is this. If we insist on being the king of our own lives, then there is nothing more disturbing than the news that God's kingdom has broken into this world in Jesus. But if we are willing to lay aside our pretense, then it's the best news in the world. As we prepare to come to the table in a moment, uh, I'd like to leave you just with this reminder of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Robert Capon says it this way. Jesus does not come to see if we are good. He comes to disturb the caked conventions by which we pretend to be good. He does not come to see if we are sorry. He knows even our repentance isn't worth the hot air we put into it. He comes only to forgive for free, for nothing, on no basis, because like the fig tree, we are too far gone to have a basis. We are saved gratis, by grace. We do nothing, and we deserve nothing. It is all absolutely and without qualification, one huge, hilarious gift. Friends, real repentance is not so much assessing our own sorrow, although that is a real part of it. And here we are in the season of Lent, where we are, are forced almost to sorrow over our sin in a new way. Real repentance is turning to Jesus and realizing that even our sorrow doesn't make us deserve his grace, and yet he has given it to us anyway. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we prepare in a moment to come to the table, to come and feast on Jesus, we are reminded that that we do not deserve your favor at all, and yet Jesus has taken on our punishment in his death, and now we feast on the brokenness of his flesh and the spilt blood of our Savior. I ask that you would feed us well with that meal. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.